Welcome to episode two of the Blocks, Paper, Scissors podcast. My name is Clark Freilich, and sitting across from me is the Professor Clyde Gaw. Hi, Clark. Today, we are podcasting from inside the art room of Sugar Creek Elementary in lovely New Palestine Elementary. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the importance of room design and the role it plays in setting the stage for an authentic learning experience. Today, Clyde suggested we have a conversation about the classroom as a third curriculum. How do we look at the classroom as a vehicle to promote learning? Where should we put the tables? What about studios? Central meeting place? Wet and dry sides of the room? What do you think, Clyde? Well, thinking about how important the learning environment is uh, in a tab tab setup, uh, students uh, need a space to move around and uh, they need a place to experiment with their beginning behavior with respect to creating art. We know that children are active learners for the most part and um, particularly in the art room it's important to uh, have a setup where children can be autonomous and agents of their own learning. Thinking about Kathy Douglas and Diane Jaquith's first book and the four foundations of TAB that they set forth in in the first book, uh, the first foundation, of course, is the child is the artist. And um, thinking about that first foundation, uh, providing conditions and a space for a child to act on their artistic ideas is, is critical so that eventually capacity for self-directedness directedness is developed. They can gain confidence in, in their artistic ability. And um, so the space in a tab classroom, just very important. Um, so what, what is it about that space? You know, materials have to be readily available for the child. And then there's the inspirational an instructional component of uh, of a tab classroom and, and having menus and uh, signage, te- text that can provide uh, guidance for the child while they're pursuing their artistic ideas. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You, you read a lot about flexible seating, designing a room around uh, learning experiences. It's something that you and I have, have both done for the last 10 years. In a studio environment, you need different, you have to have access to a lot of different things. And setting it up right, thinking about movement around the room, you know, you have to think about looking at the room in itself and how you want to design your room. Do you want to have a studio set up where you have small studios, you have a, with all the supplies and all the materials in that one studio? Or do you want to have it set up more of a a la carte or buffet where students have a centralized area for materials and then they take those materials back to their table to do their, to set up their work. And both work and both are successful, but it depends on the teacher, how they're comfortable and how they work and the space in itself. 
I personally have it set up where kids get their materials and take those back to a work area. But I know people who have the studio set up at a table and therefore have limited number of kids who can work at that studio based on the size of that studio. And I know you have a kind of maybe a combination of both. It's quite, Well, I've, I've got like a buffet set up uh, with signage around the room. Um, we have uh, work tables in the center of the room and then off on the side we have a wet side and a dry side. And I know your room, as you mentioned, is similarly set up. Correct, yeah. Can you explain what that, why would you want a wet side versus a, and a dry side? So, um, so wet side, obviously, we're working with uh, liquids, um, water in particular as a, as a solvent or as uh, part of the uh, uh, water being a, a main part of that part of the room for either cleaning or thinning paints out or other materials. Um, and so... Um, uh, dry side of the room where you might have uh, materials such as uh, drawing materials, plaster, um, although you do need water to activate the plaster, but, but keeping water away from other materials that don't necessarily mix. So having a dry side and, and a wet side uh, to the room, very uh, important in managing what goes on in, in, in a tap classroom. Yeah, especially in an elementary classroom where kids don't have the... the large motor skills, so to speak, and they tend to spill a lot of things. Yeah. So it's easier if you can locate those wet areas and maintain the spills in a smaller area as opposed to spreading them all out in the classroom, not getting water and technology mixed up. Very important. Spilling water on other people's artworks, which causes problems. For my use, it's easier to have the wet tables closer to the sinks and things and, and just to kind of keep me from losing more hair. Yeah, you certainly don't want anyone getting water on their uh, computer or their uh, right. iPad, and uh, that's always a concern. Yeah, for listeners, our district is a is a one to one. So our you know all our kids have devices, and teaching them how to take care of those and be responsible for those is is a, another thing that we another thing we have to take into account for. We yes. have to. That's why I decide to do it. So, so the uh, uh, having uh, a sink is very nice to have. I know there are some tab teachers who don't have sinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we'll just, uh, if they need water, they'll use five-gallon buckets. Um, I know um, uh, thinking about a, r- a room setup or a environment setup, uh, you can do tab in almost any kind of an environment as right. long as you have materials and a space mm-hmm. and you have other inspirational-like pieces available for children to look at. Uh, that can transmit information. The signage doesn't necessarily have to have a lot of text on it. It could have very simple symbols, uh, could uh, communicate to children what is happening at a particular learning center. And then you and I, have we've talked about menu design before, and we I think it's best not to have a lot of verbiage on, on a menu, although sometimes it can't be helped. But right. particularly if you have small children, although it's good for them to read the menu, but a lot of times uh, they just want to have a quick glance at it and uh, get get the uh, immediate information so they can go about the business of uh, creating art. Signage has always been one of those things that I've always experimented with. You know, ever since starting, I, I tried putting signs 
all over the place. I try to hang them from the ceiling. But keeping the verbiage and even using visual keys, symbols, works really well with younger kids. Keeping the, the verbiage really short, I just finished reading a book called The uh, Checklist Manifesto. And it's really, they talk more about aviation and surgery, specifically when creating lists for kids, you know, things for reference to keep it short, to keep the list you know, between five and nine things, depending on the context, and to keep it short and that there's a, a true art to creating a quality list. And and now after reading that book, I look at all the stuff that, oh my gosh, it's a lot of times lists are there just to take care of the dull, mundane stuff that has to be done. So the menu, menus and, and, and signage, um, the more efficiently designed uh, that they easily communicate uh, our concepts or how to use a material, uh, the better off they mm-hmm. are in a tab classroom. As Kathy Douglas once said, I need to give them the least amount of information that they need to get started. Using that as my motivation, I think about that every time I put something up on the wall. Is this a, a manifesto or is this a list? And so I've been trying to make things very short, succinct, use images so kids get the idea immediately, and then they can just get to work. Absolutely. Diane Jakewith uh, once said, art is a very big subject. And thinking about that uh, statement uh, always in the, be- in the forefront of my mind, having enough learning centers available in the room uh, is important to me and to the kids. Um, thinking about cognitive capacities of children and the choices they might make and, uh, and how I can accommodate their choices with a decent number of learning centers for them uh, is, is always something that I'm, I'm contemplating uh, in, with respect to room design and having enough learning centers for them. So even though the menus and the information transmitted at the menus might be, might be uh, succinct, uh, I still want to have plenty of uh, opportunities for a variety of learning activities in the room and to create uh, what could be called an abundant curriculum for them. Yeah, that's always one of the the questions that seems to pop up around the when, when teachers start getting into TAB, how many centers do I open up? What centers do you have? They, I guess they worry about not having enough, thinking some of the class sizes are, you know, 24, 25, up to 35 kids. How are you going to keep that high number of kids engaged? In my classroom... I have five core centers that are open all the time, and then I will open up ephemeral centers uh-huh. and then seasonal centers. Drawing, collage, printmaking is one that I, I usually open up. Cardboard is always open. Clay is open, but I it's one of those seasonal things because the number of students I have, it's in order for me to control it, I have to do, you know, th- three weeks for a grade level, and then I, then they stop doing clay. Then another grade level does three weeks of clay, and then I just rotate through the the different grade levels. Clay is really labor intensive from uh, on on the teacher because you're constantly managing material and art. Material and, and the, the process, you know, the process is a long process. From the time that it's made, it has to be dried, it has to be bisque fired, and then given back to the kids. They glaze it. And then we fired again. So that's, you know, 
you know, to help keep my sanity, I tried to come up with a different way of doing it to accommodate the students so that they got their enjoyment, they got their clay fix. Now, after I go through all the, the cycle of all the grade levels, there's kids who obviously want to continue doing it, and they will, you know, usually once kids do their clay once, they get it out of their system. Uh-huh. And they're ready to move on. Clay is a popular medium with small children. I think um, children naturally drawn to it. Um, They want to explore the plasticity of clay. Uh, And so it's a popular center. Tough on the teacher. And and so um, uh, back to uh, what we were talking about uh, at Tabstock um, uh, earlier last June. Uh, You know, teachers have to... They have to manage their curriculum, manage the activities the best they can. And so, um, so it, you know, when you make changes in, in your material offerings and your, uh, your learning activities, it's, it's mainly because you're balancing all kinds of, of uh, factors with, within the program. So I know you have drawing and clay and cardboard, obviously, because you're the cardboard king. Uh, that's what that's but, what I've been told. But I've but I steal your cardboard ideas yeah. all the time. But in addition to those, your core. In fact, I steal cardboard ideas everywhere. <laughs> yeah, let's say say artists steal. <laughs> Ian Sands. Good. Artists borrow. Great artists steal. In addition to your core, what kind of center offerings do you or what kind of centers do you offer is it is it something that you know at the high school level in in elementary a lot of this is new content or new experiences for kids you know origami or i just got a 3d printer so i have to work in that type of design into my curriculum but when in the high school not all kids come from a tab background so they don't get exposure to a lot of things do you uh, do you treat it like an elementary do you approach printmaking as as a new experience or do you look at it as you know i assume are you assuming that these kids might know what printmaking is right now we're creating a, a lot of art based on intuition and also from observation so i'm modeling in class uh, the steps that it would take to create an abstract work of art and a realistic work of art. And so right now, printmaking is an emergent activity that we're working from. Later on in the in the semester, I'm going to do a full-blown printmaking unit with them where I'll demonstrate different ways to mm-hmm. make prints. But right now, printmaking is, is an emergent activity that whenever I see kids who, who are in the at different stages of artistic development where printmaking might be appropriate, I'll make a suggestion to them on the spot while I'm having a conversation with them about their art. So, so uh, right now we're offering uh, printmaking as an, as an emergent activity. And there's a little, we have a little printmaking center off to the side of the room where there's styrofoam and soft linoleum and different uh, kinds of carving tools that they can use. So, uh, so I pointed that out to the students so they know it's there. And, and several of them are making use of it. But a lot of the, lot of the kids right now in my nine, 9th through 12th grade program uh, at New Palestine High School, um, they are interested in, in wanting to draw uh, and paint and explore the, the medium of, uh, of paint, taking their cues 
that's what we've been concentrating on with with the, with different centers that um, uh, that we've made available to them. And 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 those centers again, we're as you mentioned, we have a drawing center, a painting center, printmaking center, uh, and a cardboard construction center. And then we have clay off on the side. A uh, few people are in, interested in working with clay, so. So right now, those are the centers available to them. And then, of course, we have a research center, two different research libraries. And, uh, of course, I'm always selling to them uh, the, the uh, U.S. Library of Congress as a research site, a couple other uh, websites for them to, to get inspiration from, uh, Google Arts and Culture and Art21. So, um, so but that's, that's what I'm doing with high school right now. And, and from that, we're getting... A wide variety of different kinds of art. We're getting kids expressing ideas that have to do with real, uh, realistic, naturalistic images. Uh, we have students who are working from intuition. One of our lessons is about the surrealists uh, and their uh, the surrealist take on duende, which is the creative spirit people have inside of them, and it has to do with taking initiative about ideas that are coming forth at this very moment that we might have. So Duende is a playful spirit of creativity. I'm talking about that and modeling it for the kids. And it's, and they take, they remember the term Duende and they are, uh, uh, they'll say, ah, I've got my Duende working for me today, <laughs> Mr. Gaw. I'm like, ah, yes, that's wonderful to see. So they take it to heart. They remember terms that we, uh, we use in, during the five-minute lessons or ten-minute lessons at the beginning of class. And so the room, uh, once we're done with that five, ten-minute lesson, the room is open for them, and off they go. And I'll, say, I'll make the announcement, okay, the studio is open. And, uh, and we've, we've showed them how to uh, access material, how to uh, use the materials. Uh, one popular demonstration we had was working with stencils, and so we're we're trying to get uh, get more uh, stencil work out of them uh, using dry brush technique and uh, and developing skill uh, that way. And so we have some some interesting work going on with layering of elements of drawing, uh, mark making, painting, and so layering different materials on surfaces, and then watching the concept of emergence evolve on a work of art is something also that we're working with. And emergence is, is essential to the act of creativity as, as smaller units make up a whole, new forms arise, new images arise, and uh, it's so we're talking about emergence also in, in the room. So, so those are some important concepts we're, uh, we're integrating with, uh, with their uh, experience moving about the room, working in an open studio that is the TAB classroom. Do you have any things you'd like to warn people against as far as setting up centers or uh, setting up a room that maybe pitfalls that people might fall into you know one of mine is you know you can overthink a design of a room and just you know I learned that by observation watching the kids work 
you know, I might try to, you know, I might have put something out thinking, oh, this is great using my own aesthetic, but then watching the kids, it's totally not going to work. You know, one of the, you know, putting my signage too high, working with elementary kids, I had to bring it down low. There there were kids who three-fourths into the year finally look up and go, wow, you have signs in here. (laughs) Well, if you're three foot tall, it's hard to see up. I know, but I didn't, you know, you know, it didn't look good aesthetically. A lot of times people make their rooms look cute because they're elementary, but cute doesn't always teach. Taking out the extra stuff. If, if you've got a bunch of crap on your wall, kids aren't going to be able to find the important stuff if you've got it full of garbage. So I've learned over the years to take down a lot of the excess and only put up the important stuff, the stuff that we've really talked about, we've gone over in class. They know what it's for, and they use it as a reference and don't get it confused with a famous artist saying or word of the year or motivational posters. They're, they're nice, but I don't... I, I, it's interesting that you bring this idea up because... Uh, too much visual clutter, and I've read a uh, I read an article about uh, regular uh, classrooms uh, that have too much signage in them and too much visual stimuli, and it, it inhibits student learning. And I'm thinking about you know regular classroom teachers who might have store bought visual imagery, and they and I've seen a lot I've seen some teachers who've who've over uh, stimulated. Uh, the room is overpopulated with a lot of uh, visual stimuli, but it's different from. It's kind of different from a tab classroom where you you do need some stimulation and inspirational pieces. So it's so thinking about room design. Uh, it's you know you want to have a, a learning environment that is cohesive for self directedness. That's the, the critical piece about TAB is that in, in most traditional classrooms that are teacher-directed, uh, and I'm thinking about just uh, a regular tra- traditional classroom where the curricula is consists of math, English language, arts, science, etc. But in, in an art room where you want student agency, uh, you, you need those inspirational pieces and, and the signage and accessibility to materials so, so room design is, and like we were talking earlier, you know, it's a process of learning what works in your room and, and what doesn't. What, was it, what is it we always say, start small, go big, thinking about room design as an, as an evolving matter uh, with respect to one's students and one's own teaching capabilities and capacity to set up uh, a, a room that is designed for student autonomy. Yeah, I can remember starting off teaching and just wanting to cover my walls with all kinds of historical paintings and things like that. But now you have to think about, I have to think about how is this going to, like you said, inspire students? Is there a reason why I'm going to put this up on the wall? Uh, Are children motivated by dead guys who made art? Or I have to find new avenues for contemporary art you know, kids might be exposed to, or, you know, that's, you got to find the right balance. Yes. Um, maybe have kids do the research, you know, have them look for images 
that inspire them because they're inspired by emojis. Yeah. And people look at them, well, they're just emojis, but no, it's, it's a complete different language. And yet kids are inspired. You know, they use that stuff all the time. Uh, and we were, we were discussing earlier today, we were talking about being, having visual literacy, Very important. bringing that into the classroom and, and, you know, not just throwing up an image just because it's hung in a museum. That, mm-hmm. to me, that, that does not justify it being in my classroom. It has to have a purpose to be put in there because you, you could plaster the walls with images and then you just, it'd be really confusing but yeah. if you have, you know, if you're specifically learning about, you want kids to notice things. Yes. Then I would, then I, I would put that up there and, you know, reference it. It's, it becomes a, a tool to teach children. You know, you're teaching high school age, I'm teaching elementary. It's different. The dynamic is different. A lot of stuff is really new to kids. So I have to, I have to embed that appreciation for imagery where your kids are tuned out. <laughs> they're, they're going I guess it's like... harder to motivate a high school student. I wouldn't, I don't know, is it? Uh, it depends. Depends on the child. There's some who are very interested in being in the room and some who don't know why they're there, sadly. But um, that's just reality. But going back to what you were talking about with respect to student interest in contemporary imagery, like emojis, that's what they're used to, used to seeing on their cell phones or um, in social media. So, yeah, emojis are big. One of the roles that a tab art teacher plays is one as anthropologist, you know, studying human behavior and human interests and human activity. Uh, and you look at, uh, when we look at our children come past through our classroom and what they're interested in, you know, they're interested in brands, they're interested in, in uh, logo design, symbols related to, uh, you know, music, musical groups, and as you mentioned, emojis, uh, sports logos. And so um, one of the, you know, thinking about how you want your room to be specifically designed not to not to be overstimulating and not just to clutter the room up so that the children become passive consumers of imagery but you know there's a purpose for, for these images being in the room and uh, and we, and we have some of our 5 minute discussions during class or 10 minute discussions are about visual literacy and how have we become a society of passive uh, consumers of, of, of visual imagery, logo design, and you know what what does it mean that I only want to buy uh, Aeropostale clothing and uh, Hollister clothes? Um, why am I why am I attached to that brand? Well, we we could get into a whole other discussion about how kids are manipulated through imagery and through digital worlds. Uh-huh. Um, social media. Th- social media, but that that would be that's probably for another podcast. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, 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 I digressed. I'm so no, sorry. no. It's 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 tough that you know art teachers have to deal with all the time, but um, I think uh, for now, I think we need to wrap up this podcast. Before we go, is there anything you're doing or reading right now that you'd like to share? Thinking about curriculum and um, the the fluid uh, curriculum of a tab classroom, reading the work of William Pinar, uh, I, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, and also thinking about Elliot Eisner, 
and uh, and his work with curriculum uh, in in the visual arts and thinking about the the big impact that TAB has had on art education in the past decade and how how important having a flexible curriculum is and how important having a room that is designed to facilitate democratic education and curriculum that is as dynamic as that of a TAB art program. Thinking about room design, it's it's critical and um, to a successful TAB program. Still, you know, tweaking my own room and, and making pieces in the room to help facilitate student learning. Just, it's it's ongoing. Oh, yeah. Thinking it's, about. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years, and I change my room every year based on what I learned the previous year, or I see something and I want to try it and see if it has an impact on students in my classroom. You know, I started reading a, a book, just started reading, called Dive Into Inquiry. I've seen that book. By Trevor McKenzie. And it's about empowering student voice in the classroom. So hopefully I'll be able to get something out of it. I don't, you know, it's just like any other book that you read. A lot of it, I know when you read, you really dig it deep into the words. I read more and then just take everything that's repeated and then let that sink in. Because there's, there's a lot of books out there. You know, Clark, I don't think I don't think there's enough people who understand uh, the dynamic of the TAB classroom in general education today. Although it's TAB is not the secret that it used to be, but you know, room design is taken up s- seriously by TAB teachers, and it's part of the success the TAB approach to, to education uh, has had um, in K twelve programs throughout the country. But room design is, is, you know, that's kind of like the secret sauce of TAB. But it definitely... No, it's, it's definitely key. My social media feed is full of posts about room design, flexible seating, student-led this, and, and it's stuff that like you and I have been doing for 13 years, and we're like, finally, people are starting to wake up and see the power that I saw back in uh, the early 2000s. I want to Thank you so much again for this is our second podcast. I think it went a lot better this time than it's it did the first time. Always my pleasure to have a conversation about art and education and creativity with you, Clark. Always. Just a reminder to our listeners, if you have a question or topic you'd like Clyde or me to discuss, just email it to us at seagaw at blockspaperscissors.com. You can also record your question on your mobile device and send it as well. Thank you all for listening to the Blocks, Paper, Scissors podcast.